when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing another independence referendum for Scotland and the growing row between Theresa May and Philip Hammond. I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, political correspondent Kate Allen, Whitehall editor James Blitz, and Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey. Thank you all for joining. It's been a big week for Scotland. On Monday, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, announced that she wants to hold another independence referendum, crucially before the UK has left the EU. She claimed that the Westminster government has ignored all of the Scottish nationalist Brexit demands and it's time to reconsider the question of the union with England. The Prime Minister Theresa May hit back, saying she won't sanction another referendum until Brexit is concluded. So, Mewdicky, let's begin. How surprised were you with this announcement? We knew Ms Sturgeon was thinking about having another referendum vote, but it still came as a bit of a shock for her to announce this when she did. What was her thinking? Well, I think strategically she had left herself not very much room other than to go for another independence referendum, in part because the UK government had made little effort, I think, to compromise on any of the Brexit issues that Scottish government had focused on. So we were expecting her to move in that direction, but tactically it came quicker than we expected. She chose to preempt Theresa May's triggering of the Article 50 process for leaving the EU, and I think that was to put the UK government on the back foot and to give the impression that uh, Nicola Sturgeon had the initiative. She certainly did that, James Blitz, because we were all lined up thinking, or some of us were, that Article 50 might be triggered on Tuesday. There were certain preparations in Whitehall for that, and clearly the government wasn't able to do that. And it was in shock, I think, as the rest of us were, that this was going to happen. And as Mia said, it certainly looked like Miss Sturgeon had the initiative. Yes, I think it did. I didn't actually myself think that Article 50 would be triggered on Tuesday, partly because the Dutch elections were the next day, and I think it would have been quite extraordinarily stupid of the British government to actually do that when we didn't know what the result for builders would be. So I thought that was never on the cards. I think the wider point, if one looks right back over the whole of the nine months since Mrs May first came to office, is that we've always been asking ourselves in London, who would actually stand up to Mrs May's vision of a hard Brexit? Would it be the UK Parliament, especially after it was given the go-ahead by the Supreme Court to pave the way for Article 50? In fact, in the end, Parliament ducked that. British business hasn't really stood up. It's very much dealt with it in terms of doing all the preparation for Brexit, but there's been no significant resistance by a business leader. The civil service, with the exception of Sir Ivan Rogers, hasn't really stood up. 
Nicola Sturgeon is the one person who has really given Mrs May pause for thought in the UK by stating that she will have this referendum. And it's, it's an important moment because it's the first time that Mrs May's commitment to a hard Brexit strategy has really been tested because in the end she does now have to think the Prime Minister in the 18 months ahead. Can she really afford to either do a deal with the Europeans which really takes Britain out of the single market in a very considerable way or alternatively have no deal at all which does seem to be the ambition of some of the hard Brexiters. So in that sense this was a very important moment and the first time in nine months that Mrs May has really had to start thinking about her strategy. So, Mio, if we go back to the question of what um, Nicola Sturgeon wants to achieve here, because they want to have a vote before, say, March 2019, which is when the Article 50 period is expected to conclude. So if they have a vote then, the big problem the SNP is going to face is what kind of relationship is an independent Scotland going to have with the EU? Because Scotland risks being dragged out of the EU and being dragged out of the UK. Well, I think it's clear now that Scotland will, whatever happens, whether it's part of the UK or independent, have a period at least outside the EU. It's interesting, Nicola Sturgeon actually didn't insist that the referendum had to be before Brexit took effect. She said before it takes effect or at least shortly after and, and put that around spring 2019. And that essentially means even if the vote was before Brexit took effect, there wouldn't be time to disentangle Scotland from the UK in order to even aspire to continued EU membership. So Scotland will be out. And you're absolutely right. The question of what its future relationship with the EU would be, will be, if there is a referendum central to it. The difficulty in the past has been that the SNP has had a policy of being strongly for EU membership, but they have never had any kind of assurance from other EU member states or the Commission about how that could be achieved. I think, though, something that's changed that's very important since 2014 is the general sympathy in European capitals for an independent Scotland's EU membership would be much greater in the context of Brexit. It would be an affirmation of the European project. And and many people who've looked at the issue from the Scottish perspective think that it might be the case that uh, objections from countries like Spain that have their own separatist movements are likely to be less definitive obstacles than they might appear at first. So things that the SNP would have to deal with when it gets there. But at the moment, they have a more immediate political problem in that quite a lot of people who support independence and who have voted for the SNP in the past also voted for Brexit. So Nicola Sturgeon is now trying to make sure she doesn't alienate those people while still appealing to the Europhiles for whom independence is an option because it gives a route back to the EU. And one way she's done that, James, is by saying that an independent Scotland could possibly join the EEA, so it would not go back into the EU, it would remain in the single market. How practical is that, though? Because we still have this big question about currency, which is, as well as Scotland's relationship with the EU and the UK, is one of the big unknowns, because Theresa May's government will take a much harder line, I think, than the Cameron government and simply say very early on, no way that an independent Scotland will have the pound, which means what would its currency be and how would it use that to go into the EEA? Well, that currency issue was the issue which did for Alex Salmond in 2014, I think, would still be there if Scotland were to leave. As you say, there are several issues here. We came to a referendum. I mean, the first question is, obviously, that the momentum behind independence would depend to a large extent on what kind of Brexit we'd see. If it was a disorderly Brexit, then with an economic shock, then I think clearly the momentum behind independence would be very strong. 
if it weren't Mrs May did a satisfactory deal, it might be very weak. If Miss Sturgeon then, if there was really a case for a referendum and she got momentum behind her, yes. The thing about going for the EEA is you don't go for full EU membership. But if you stay in the customs union, then you don't effectively have any kind of hard border, which would be satisfactory. So I think by going into the EEA, they would effectively meet their goal of being members of the single market in the way that Norway is as an EEA member. So they're in the single market like Norway. And that would not ruffle the feathers of the Spanish and others quite so much. So I think a lot of people are beginning to talk about EEA membership as quite a serious possibility. But this raised the question of the border again, which is another issue to do with the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But if Scotland was in the EEA, then it would probably have some form of free movement of people. And this raised the question, would there have to be a hard border between England and Scotland? Yes, that would be a difficult issue. I think if, if, if Scotland remained in the customs union, then you wouldn't have to have that hard border. So that might get the Scots over that problem. Maybe Muir has a point on that. It might be that people are overplaying the problem of people movement when it comes to a hard border, in that there is a lot of free movement with different visa arrangements in Europe at the moment. Clearly, you would have to have some sort of arrangement like the common travel arrangement we have with Ireland and have had for decades to manage who comes into that sort of shared space. But I don't see necessarily a need for a hard border with checkpoints between Scotland and England if there was freedom of movement in Scotland and not south of the border. And what did you make of Mrs May's response to this, Muir? Because she began by saying politics is not a game, which is a very Theresa May thing to say. And then from that, both her and Ruth Davidson, who's leader of the Scottish Conservatives, have said we will not allow a vote during the Brexit negotiations. This is a pretty tough line approach, but they have actually, in fact, acknowledged that they will allow a second referendum. Well, not even that. In fact, when Theresa May said not now, she was very careful not to say if not now, then when. And uh, Ruth Davidson and David Mundell, the Secretary of State for Scotland, have introduced what looked like very tough new criteria for even discussing another referendum. Uh, Ms. Davidson was talking about the need for cross-party agreement in the Scottish Parliament. In other words, that for another referendum to be considered, there would have to be backing for it from the parties, including the Conservative Party, that oppose independence. And she also mentioned a need for public opinion to be in favour of independence before a referendum could be discussed. Presumably, she wouldn't go into details, but uh, presumably to be measured by opinion polls. So these are new obstacles in the way of independence. And looking at the timing that it would take to set up a referendum, I think it looks increasingly doubtful whether the UK government is at all willing to allow a referendum during the term of the Scottish Parliament, which is when the SNP has what it sees as a, as a mandate uh, for calling one. Because that's the key thing, James, that Theresa May would ideally like to push this to 2021. So there's another round of elections for the Scottish Parliament and the calculations in Downing Street are that, number one, that the referendum would become an issue in those elections and unionists might rally round, say, the Scottish Conservatives, the SNP would lose their majority in Hollywood and then be unable to pass the legislation to begin the process. The second thing is the SNP's record in government because they've been in government by that point for 14 years and there's a lot of questions about how good they've been in government and things they've done to Scotland's police force, education and health service and its deficit as well. 
yes, all those points are very, very valid. I think if this thing were pushed back to 2021, then that would start to weigh quite heavily on the SNP. It would then be a good four years since Miss Sturgeon had raised the possibility of holding the referendum. Which could build up support for independence in that period. You know, it could work either way. I honestly think in the end, one can slice it and dice it any way one wants about timing. It really does boil down, though, in the end to, in that sense, Theresa May is right to some degree. It really does boil down to the deal. What Brexit looks like. What Brexit looks like. I mean, there are really two possibilities, frankly. Either this thing is going to go in a more benign direction than people think, and there will be a deal which does, in the end, give the British extensive privileged access to the single market and the case for independence will therefore be somewhat undermined and Scots are clearly pretty resistant to holding this referendum so even though the polls are showing that the numbers for independence are going up the resistance to referendum is quite high still so it could go that way or alternatively there'll be a disorderly Brexit in the next 18 months in which case I think things will run pretty swiftly in Miss Sturgeon's direction and I think it will be very hard to hold the floodgates back so in that sense I think it's quite difficult to judge how all things would look in a scenario that goes on beyond that. And then finally, Muriel... If I could add a a couple of points, actually, because on the point of the orderly or disorderly nature of Brexit, the harder the Brexit and the more disconnection there is between the UK's economy and the EU, the more expensive it will be for Scotland to break away from the UK, uh, because the UK remains by far its most important trading and economic partner. At the same time, as as James says, the, the harder and more disorderly and damaging the Brexit... Uh, the more people in Scotland are likely to want to to be out of the UK. So there's two very much conflicting potential factors there. But on the issue of Theresa May's approach to this referendum, I think you could call it a fairly bold bet on the nature of the modern Scottish character in that many Scottish people would tend to see themselves as being resistant to being told when they can or cannot make decisions. There's a kind of prickliness to this national stereotype. And I think there is a risk that by being told by Westminster that you can't have a referendum, that she will boost support for independence. But clearly, there are also many Scots who proudly and want to continue in the United Kingdom and would be uh, only pleased if the referendum is taken off the table. And finally, Mira, based on everything you've seen this week and what all the sides have said, do you think there'll be another independence referendum? And how do you think it would go? I think it's very difficult to answer either of those questions at the moment. Constitutionally, it's, it seems fairly straightforward that if the UK government does not give approval for a referendum, then a meaningful referendum can't be held. But I think whether that position is politically sustainable will depend on how public opinion shifts, I think. I would say I'm not going to make a bet on the final result of a referendum. I would say I think it, within the, the next five, 10, 15 years, there's a very high possibility that Scotland will revisit through a referendum its relationship with the United Kingdom. And I would say uh, it feels to me even odds that it would end up outside the UK in that period. Theresa May appears to have had something of a falling out with Philip Hammond. Last week, the Chancellor announced in his spring budget that he would be hiking national insurance contributions for the self-employed. Cue much outrage from Conservative MPs and the popular press. After promising MPs there would be no U-turn, 
Mr Hammond announced just before PMQs on Wednesday that he would be dropping the pledge, reportedly after pressure from Downing Street. So, Kate Allen, this really was quite unexpected because there was a lot of furore and anger immediately after the budget announcement, and it sort of went away and we heard that Mr Hammond addressed Conservative MPs on Monday and they said, look, we'll back you as long as you don't U-turn on this because if you U-turn, you're going to make us look like idiots and, well, he U-turned and did make some of them look like idiots. Yes, it was a surprise because I think that although we all expected the government was going to have to try and back away from this policy, the general consensus was that what we were expecting was that they were going to wait until this wider review that they've commissioned reports back in the summer and then use that as a way of sorting the whole mess out in a much more systematic way. So the fact that Hammond and May sprung this U-turn on us on, on Wednesday caused quite a shock at Westminster. It didn't seem to be necessary. The controversy was dying down. Chris Giles, what can you tell us about the dynamic between the Treasury and Number 10? Because there's been a lot of stuff written in the press, this idea that Number 10 was pushing for this to be withdrawn because it was seen as hitting at entrepreneurs, which were a key part of the Tory vote, whereas the Treasury pointed out, as the FT has, that economically this is not a bad policy, that it's progressive and it would make a fairer tax system and, most importantly, provide much-needed cash for social care, which everyone seems to have forgotten in all this row. The slightly weird thing is that both sides are still trying to run both arguments at the same time. They're trying to say there is a problem with the self-employed tax and national insurance system, that they pay less, and that is enough to encourage people to become, in some sense, bogus self-employed people or for companies to force what are effectively workers into being self-employed to make very big savings on employer national insurance. So they're saying this is a problem. And then they're saying, and we're not going to do anything about it because we thought about doing something about it and then realised that was far too complicated because it seemed to annoy people, particularly our voters who are entrepreneurs and the lifeblood of the economy and all that sort of stuff. And so they've got this terrible tension between these two, as it were, principled positions and it's not clear at all how they're going to be able to resolve that. The essential problem here, Kate, is that Philip Hammond, as we've said many times, spreadsheet Phil, loves looking at the details, loves looking at all the numbers, but maybe he didn't quite consider the political implications. And there was a lot of people saying, oh, well, he broke a manifesto pledge, which I found quite surprising because nobody really reads political manifestos, least of all voters, I don't think. So some claim this was actually a bit of a covert war for Brexiters who want to get Mr Hammond out of the cabinet or weak because they don't seem as positive enough or talking down Britain or something like that. Yes, well, it was quite obvious that somebody at the Treasury hadn't read the Conservative Party manifesto, and that was what turned out to be the entire problem. They seemed to be basing their argument of why they were doing this and why it was justified and why it wasn't breaking a manifesto pledge on a speech that George Osborne made after the election. But it became very obvious on Budget Day that that just wasn't going to wash with the parliamentary press gallery, who were all over it and really gave Mr Hammond's spokeswoman a very hard time about it. But I also think that Mr Hammond himself has not backed away from this policy at all, not a jot. His statement in the Commons on Wednesday in which he was forced to explain why they were U-turning was notable for the number of times and the passion with which he actually defended the policy. So it was very clear that this is a politically motivated and politically convenient U-turn. And as you say, uh, Mr Hammond himself is wedded to it in principle because he knows, as the FT said this week, it's the right thing to do. Yes, when he was in Parliament trying to defend both the policy and the U-turn. It was rather uncomfortable, I thought, when I watched it. So I would imagine what we're going to get is a long review. We're going to get the Matthew Taylor review. But that's not really about taxation. That's really just about... Self-employed generally. Self-employed generally and the status of work. 
and we might see some tidying up of legislation of who is a self-employed person, who is, quote, a worker, and who is then a self-employed person or business. And there's sort of law which governs the status, and there's tax law, and they're not the same. And so it's a right mess, let's face it, at the moment. And so I can imagine an attempt to tidy it up. And then in that attempt, I can imagine that they will not go for the same sort of national insurance increase, but they'll go for something else which looks superficially different, but is fundamentally quite similar. The key thing here, Kate, is that Philip Hammond and Theresa May were thought to be quite close. They went to university together. They were never, I think, friends, but they were at least thought to be on the kind of same terrain in terms of very serious politicians who aren't interested in games. They wanted just to get on with the job of governing the country, both quite dry in a sense. But this split certainly opened up between them. We saw some very vicious briefings between them at 10-11 with people in the Treasury saying those around Theresa May were economically illiterate and those around number... 10, saying that the Treasury didn't care but people didn't understand. So it's a lot of bad blood that's now been created and people have begun tentatively asked, is this going to be sustainable in the long term? Yes, as one former minister said to me on Wednesday afternoon, Theresa May needs to come out and back some kind of big idea of Hammond's very, very quickly and very publicly in a bid to show that she is basically making it up to him for what seems to be forcing him to undergo such a humiliating day with this climb down. And as you say, although they were never as close as Cameron and Osborne, who basically ran almost a joint premiership, really, the Treasury has voluntarily downgraded itself from that position under Hammond. But he and May have known each other for an extreme long time and they are used to working together very closely and so what we really need to see now is we need to see Theresa May extending an olive branch to the Treasury by giving Phil a bit of a boost. Unfortunately this isn't something that Mrs May is known for doing very well. She's not spread very much honey around Westminster in the past and so a lot of backbenchers and indeed her own cabinet don't necessarily have much loyalty to her that's built into the relationship already. But I think she and the team around her need to learn how to manage those relationships and build that that goodwill if we're not going to see things like this turn really sour. We're not in the situation of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown quite yet, Chris, who obviously were daggers with each other towards the end of Mr Blair's premiership. But they do seem to have different priorities, though, because Theresa May seems to be all about spending, you know, putting money into schools, money into housing, all these different kind of things. Whereas Philip Hammond is saying, ah, but don't forget, we've still got a deficit to close, got a growing debt pile, and this is all before you consider the uncertainty of Brexit. Yeah, and he's also very conscious of the fact that in the next decade, all the bills of ageing of a population begin to start to fall on Britain. What sort it, of times that, does that begin to It starts to kick in about 2020 actually. The reason why it's not starting earlier than that is because in this decade we still have the rising of the female state pension age which is really offsetting the natural tendency. That ends in about 2020 and that's why that's the moment where those bills start to kick in and they're kicking pretty fast. So the next decade isn't looking great and the Treasury is very well aware of this. I've never known certainly my professional career, the Treasury to be as weak as it seems to be today. It's weaker than under Alice Darling when he had a very powerful former Chancellor, Gordon Brown, wanting to run the Treasury from number 10. I think it's probably the last time it was this week was when John Major was briefly Chancellor in 1990. And that's really going back quite a long way. And I suppose the question is going to be, as Kate says, can they repair that? And does the Treasury get more powerful? Because we've got another budget coming later this year. I think people will be watching very closely to see, is this a May budget or Hammond budget? Because this was certainly a Philip Hammond budget that we saw last week. And clearly, I think number 10 is going to be a lot more involved in future budgets because it's easily been the Prime Minister's worst week so far. And she's 
he's lost a lot of political yeah. capital over this and the other matters that have gone wrong as well. I think at the moment we don't know, but we know what Philip Hammond wanted to do before this whole U-turn debacle happened over the past week and a half. And he wanted the autumn budget to be the real Philip Hammond budget. So this one was just a sort of taster of what the real <laughs> Philip Hammond was. It was always going to be that the autumn was the big budget, this was the small budget. And in fact, every other measure apart from the national insurance increase was essentially known before Budget Day. In fact, we had a wind of the national insurance increase and we conceded in the Monday before the budget's FT newspaper. But we suddenly got cold feet when we were reporting it. This is George Parker and I, because we thought, oh, politically it won't fly. So maybe maybe we've got our antennae wrong when we think they're going to do it. Very sharp, it so seems. So we U-turned before we, <laughs> we went to print and uh, they took a bit longer. And the other thing, Kate, is that if relations were not repaired between number 10 and number 11. It's not really anybody else around to replace Philip Hammond at the moment because one of the criticisms of Theresa May's cabinet is that there's not a huge amount of A-star players in there. There's a lot of people who are good and developing at their jobs, but there's not a natural person who could slot into that job if he went off somewhere else. Yes, and I think that's one of Philip Hammond's real advantages here, that there doesn't seem to be any serious contender for his job. And also, to be honest, politically, I don't get the feeling that Number 10, Downing Street, have really seriously thought about the possibility that souring the relationship could potentially result in her needing to find another Chancellor. I don't get the sense that there is a serious consideration of Mr Hammond being on the way out. I think it's simply that this is the way Theresa May tends to work. She can be quite brutal to people when she feels that they've put a foot wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she She's casting them adrift and writing them off. It's simply that they have to take the pain that she feels that they've brought on their own heads. Just a thought on a potential other chance. I don't disagree with Kate at all. I do think it's not really the curtains for Philip Hammond at all yet. But Michael Fallon, Defence Secretary, former number two on the Treasury Select Committee, clearly knows the Treasury beat. He would love the job. He's a big beast. He would do it. He'd be fine if he wanted to have that sort of big, aggressive beast in the Treasury. Well, you heard it here first. Now, Kate, just for something a bit more gossipy at the moment, I don't think I've ever seen the FT newsroom on fire as it has been on Friday when the news was announced that George Osborne, a former Chancellor, a very political Chancellor, is to become the new editor of the London Evening Standard, which I think took everyone by complete surprise that Mr Osborne, since being ejected from the Treasury last year, has collected a whole portfolio of other jobs. He's got a gig at BlackRock Asset Management. He's on a speaking circuit. He's writing a book. He's on the executive of the 1922 committee. He's also the MP for Tatton in the north of England and he's chair of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. On top of that, he's now going to edit a newspaper and MPs I've heard from today are very baffled by this. Yes, it's caused just as much surprise at Westminster as it has caused in newsrooms across London. It's really a left-field move by George Osborne. But at the same time, if he wanted to do something to surprise, shock, irritate and worry Theresa May, the person who sacked him last year, someone with whom there is absolutely no love lost between her and George Osborne, he couldn't really have picked a much better vehicle or outlet for him to use to stir up trouble and needle her. So it's going to be extremely interesting to see what he does with it. And it's also going to be extremely interesting to see whether the um, Committee on Standards in Public Life approves of the 
move, given, as you say, his uh, rapidly expanding CV. There's going to be a lot of questions, Chris, I think, asked about the conflict of interest here, as well as the fact that he's a sitting MP and will have a vote on legislation from press regulation to all manner of things that could affect the evening standard. The other question is his blackrocking that the city pages of the standard newspaper are going to be reporting on a very large company that their boss works for. It's hard to see that it's going to be sustainable even in the short term. I think it was very telling, actually, with hindsight, that we had another conflict of interest scandal this week at the Bank of England, and he, two days ago, leapt to the support of Charlotte Hogg, who has resigned, saying that this wouldn't have happened to a man. But when she had to resign on a conflict of interest, he tweeted that. And now you can see, well, he's got his own conflicts of interest problems here, particularly for the city pages of The Standard. You can't have a very, very well-remunerated job at BlackRock and then think that your city pages are going to be untainted by that. And equally, there's some terrible questions with, as you say, what you do about press regulation if you're voting on the matter. So I think he might well be a very good editor of the London Standard, but I can't quite see how he can do that and remain an MP at the same time. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.